Hello, dear listeners. What else can I say other than that yours cruelly, Adam Hebert, and Dread Time Stories have both returned from the grave. At this time, there will be no major changes to the show format. However, I am always open to positive change. For story time this week, we have a pair of short tales by supernatural horror writer H.P. Lovecraft, both personal favorites of mine. And they're both cautionary tales as well. The first, The Doom That Came to Sarnath, is a tale about why one should be a good neighbor and not commit mass murder. The other, The Cats of Ulthar, is a tale that shows why one should always be kind to animals, especially cats. I'll be back after with the introduction to our next segment. Fox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Bonhart. The Doom That Came to Sarnath by H.P. Lovecraft. There is, in the land of Minar, a vast, still lake that is fed by no stream, and out of which no stream flows. Ten thousand years ago, there stood by its shore the mighty city of Sarnath, but Sarnath stands there no more. It is told that in the immemorial years, when the world was young, before ever the men of Sarnath came to the land of Minar, another city stood beside the lake, the grey stone city of Ib, which was as old as the lake itself, and peopled by beings not pleasing to behold. Very odd and ugly were these beings, as indeed are most beings of a world yet inchoate and rudely fashioned. It is written on the brick cylinders of Cadatheron that the beings of Ib were in hue as green as the lake and the mists that rise above it, that they had bulging eyes, pouting, flabby lips, and curious ears, and were without voice. It is also written that they descended one night from the moon in a mist, they and the vast still lake and the grey stone city Ib. However this may be, it is certain that they worshipped a sea-green stone idol chiseled in the likeness of Bakrug, the great water lizard, before which they danced horribly when the moon was gibbous. 
and it is written in the papyrus of Ilarnek that one day they discovered fire, and thereafter kindled flames on many ceremonial occasions. But not much is written of these beings, because they lived in very ancient times, and man is young and knows but little of the very ancient living things. After many eons, men came to the land of Menar, dark shepherd folk with their fleecy flocks, who built Thra, Ilarnek, and Kadatharon on the winding river Ai. And certain tribes, more hardy than the rest, pushed on to the border of the lake, and built Sarnath at a spot where precious metals were found in the earth. Not far from the grey city of Ib did the wandering tribes lay the first stones of Sarnath, and at the beings of Ib they marveled greatly. But with their marveling was mixed hate, for they thought it not meet that beings of such aspect should walk about the world of men at dusk, nor did they like the strange sculptures upon the grey monoliths of Ib, for why those sculptures lingered so late in the world, even until the coming of men, none can tell, unless it is because the land of Menar is very still and remote from most other lands, both of waking and of dream. As the men of Sarnath beheld more of the beings of Ib, their hate grew, and it was not less because they found the beings weak and soft as jelly to the touch of stones and arrows. So one day the young warriors, the slingers and the spearmen and the bowmen, marched against Ib, and slew all the inhabitants thereof, pushing the queer bodies into the lake with long spears, because they did not wish to touch them. And because they did not like the grey sculpted monoliths of Ib, they cast these also into the lake, wondering from the greatness of the labor however the stones were brought from afar, as they must have been, since there is not like them in the land of Menar or the lands adjacent. Thus, of the very ancient city of Ib, nothing was spared, save the sea-green stone idol chiseled in the likeness of Bakrug, the water lizard. This the young warriors took back with them as a symbol of conquest over the old gods and beings of Th, and as a sign of leadership in Menar. But on the night after it was set up in the temple, a terrible thing must have happened, for weird lights were seen over the lake, and in the morning the people found the idol gone, and the high priest, Taran Ish, lying dead, as from some fear unspeakable. And before he died, Taran Ish had scrawled upon the altar of chrysolite, in coarse, shaky strokes, the sign of doom. After Taran Ish, there were many high priests in Sarnath. But never was the sea-green stone idol found, and many centuries came and went, wherein Sarnath prospered exceedingly, so that only priests and old women remembered what Taran-ish had scrawled upon the altar of chrysolite. Betwixt Sarnath and the city of Ilarnek arose a caravan route, and the precious metals from the earth were exchanged for other metals and rare cloths and jewels and books and tools for artificers and all things of luxury that are known to the people who dwell along the winding river Ai and beyond. So Sarnath waxed mighty, and learned, and beautiful, and sent forth conquering armies to subdue the neighboring cities. And in time there sat upon a throne in Sarnath the kings of all the land of Manar and of many lands adjacent. 
The wonder of the world and the pride of all mankind was Sarnath the Magnificent, of polished desert-quarried marble were its walls, in height three hundred cubits, and in breadth seventy-five, so that chariots might pass each other as men drove them along the top. For full five hundred stadia did they run, being open only on the side toward the lake, where a green stone sea-wall kept back the waves that rose oddly once a year at the festival of the destroying of Ib. In Sarnath were fifty streets, from the lake to the gates of the caravans, and fifty more intersecting them, with onyx where they paved, save those whereupon the horses and camels and elephants trod, which were paved with granite. And the gates of Sarnath were as many as the landward ends of the streets, each of bronze, and flanked by the figures of lions and elephants, carven from some stone no longer known among men. The houses of Sarnath were of glazed brick and chalcedony, each having its walled garden and crystal lakelet. With strange art were they builded, for no other city had houses like them, and travelers from Thra and Ilarnik and Kadatharon marveled at the shining domes wherewith they were surmounted. But more marvelous still were the palaces and the temples and the gardens made by Zokar the Olden King. There were many palaces, the last of which were mightier than any in Thra or Larnek or Gadatharon. So high were they that one within might sometimes fancy himself beneath only the sky. Yet, when lighted with torches dipped in the oil of Dothar, their walls showed vast paintings of kings and armies, of a splendor at once inspiring and stupefying to the beholder. Many were the pillars of the palaces, all of tinted marble, and carven into designs of surpassing beauty, and in most of the palaces the floors were mosaics of beryl and lapis lazuli and sardonyx and carbuncle and other choice materials, so disposed that the beholder might fancy himself walking over beds of the rarest flowers. And there were likewise fountains, which cast scented waters about in pleasing jets arranged with cunning art. Outshining all others was the palace of the kings of Menar and of the lands adjacent. On a pair of golden crouching lions rested the throne, many steps above the gleaming floor. And it was wrought of one piece of ivory, though no man lives who knows whence so vast a piece could have come. In that palace... There were also many galleries and many amphitheaters where lions and men and elephants battled at the pleasure of the kings. Sometimes the amphitheaters were flooded with water conveyed from the lake in mighty aqueducts, and then were enacted stirring sea fights or combats betwixt swimmers and deadly marine things. Lofty and amazing were the seventeen tower-like temples of Sarnath, fashioned of a bright multicolored stone not known elsewhere. A full thousand cubits high stood the greatest among them, wherein the high priests dwelt with a magnificence scarce less than that of the kings. On the ground were halls as vast and splendid as those of the palaces, where gathered throngs in worship of Zokalar and Tamash and Loban, the chief gods of Sarnath, whose incense enveloped shrines were as the thrones of monarchs. Not like the icons of other gods were those of Zokalar and Tamash and Loban, for so close to life were they that one might swear the graceful bearded gods themselves sat on the ivory thrones. And up unending steps of Zircon, 
was the tower chamber, wherefrom the high priests looked out over the city and the plains and the lake by day, and at the cryptic moon and significant stars and planets and their reflections in the lake at night. Here was done the very secret and ancient rite in detestation of Bakrug, the water lizard, and here rested the altar of chrysolite, which bore the doom scrawl of Turan-ish. Wonderful likewise were the gardens made by Zokar the Olden King. In the center of Sarnath they lay, covering a great space and encircled by a high wall, and they were surmounted by a mighty dome of glass, through which shone the sun and moon and planets when it was clear, and from which were hung fulgent images of the sun and moon and stars and planets when it was not clear. In summer the gardens were cooled with fresh odorous breezes wafted by fans, and in winter they were heated with concealed fires, so that in those gardens it was always spring. There ran little streams over bright pebbles, dividing meads of green and gardens of many hues, and spanned by a multitude of bridges. Many were the waterfalls in their courses, and many were the hued lakelets into which they expanded. Over the streams and lakelets rode white swans, whilst the music of rare birds chimed in with the melody of the waters. In ordered terraces rose the green banks, adorned here and there with bowers of vines and sweet blossoms, and seats and benches of marble and porphyry. And there were many small shrines and temples where one might rest or pray to small gods. Each year there was celebrated in Sarnath the feast of the destroying of Ib, at which time wine, song, dancing, and merriment of every kind abounded, Great honors were laid to the shades of those who had annihilated the odd ancient beings, and the memory of those beings and of their elder gods was derided by dancers and lutenists crowned with roses from the gardens of Zokar. And the kings would look out over the lake and curse the bones of the dead that lay beneath it. At first the high priests liked not these festivals, for there had descended among them queer tales of how the sea-green icon had vanished, and how Taran-ish had died from fear and left a warning. And they said that from their high tower they sometimes saw lights beneath the waters of the lake. But as many years passed without calamity, even the priests laughed and cursed and joined in the orgies of the feasters. Indeed, had they not themselves in their high tower often performed the very ancient and secret rite in detestation of Bakrug the water lizard, and a thousand years of riches and delight passed over Sarnath, wonder of the world. Gorgeous beyond thought was the feast of the thousandth year of the destroying of Ib, for a decade had it been talked of in the land of Menar, and as it drew nigh there came to Sarnath on horses and camels and elephants men from Thra, Ilarnek, and Kadatharon, and all the cities of Menar and the lands beyond. Before the marble walls on the appointed night were pitched the pavilions of princes and the tents of travelers. Within his banquet hall reclined Nargis High, the king, drunken with ancient wine from the vaults of conquered Panath, and surrounded by feasting nobles and hurrying slaves. There were eaten many strange delicacies that feast, peacocks from the distant hills of Linplan, heels of camels from the Benazic desert, 
nuts and spices from Sindathrian groves, and pearls from wave-washed metal dissolved in the vinegar of Thra. Of sauces there were an untold number, prepared by the subtlest cooks in all Manar, and suited to the palate of every feaster. But most prized of all the viands were the great fishes from the lake, each of vast size, and served upon golden platters set with rubies and diamonds. Whilst the king and his nobles feasted within the palace, and viewed the crowning dish as it awaited them on golden platters, others feasted elsewhere. In the tower of the great temple the priests held revels, and in pavilions without the walls the princes of neighboring lands made merry. And it was the high priest Genai Ka who first saw the shadows that descended from the gibbous moon into the lake and the damnable green mists that rose from the lake to meet the moon, and to shroud in a sinister haze the towers and the domes of fated Sarnath. Thereafter, those in the towers and without the walls beheld strange lights on the water, and saw that the grey rock Akurion, which was wont to rear high above it near the shore, was almost submerged, and fear grew vaguely yet swiftly so that the princes of Ilarnek and of far Rakol took down and folded their tents and pavilions and departed, though they scarce knew the reason for their departing. Then, close to the hour of midnight, all the bronze gates of Sarnath burst open and emptied forth a frenzied throng that blackened the plain, so that all the visiting princes and travelers fled away in fright, for on the faces of this throng was writ a madness born of horror unendurable, and on their tongues were words so terrible that no hearer paused for proof. Men whose eyes were wild with fear shrieked aloud of the sight within the king's banquet hall, where through the windows were seen no longer the forms of Nargis High and his nobles and slaves, but a horde of indescribable green voiceless things with bulging eyes, pouting flabby lips and curious ears, things which danced horribly, bearing in their paws golden plates set with rubies and diamonds and containing uncouth flames. And the princes and travelers, as they fled from the doomed city of Sarnath on horses and camels and elephants, looked back again upon the mist-beginning lake and saw the grey rock Kurion was quite submerged. Through all the land of Manar and the land adjacent spread the tales of those who had fled from Sarnath, and caravans sought that accursed city and its precious metals no more. It was long ere any travel went thither, and even then only the brave and adventurous young men of yellow hair and blue eyes, who were no kin to the men of Manar. These men indeed went to the lake to view Sarnath, but though they found the vast still lake itself, and the great rock Akurion which rears high above it near the shore, they beheld not the wonder of the world and the pride of all mankind. Where once had risen walls of three hundred cubits and towers yet higher, now stretched only the marshy shore. Where once had dwelt fifty million men, now crawled the detestable water lizard. Not even the mines of precious metal remained. Doom had come to Sarnath. 
But half buried in the rushes was spied a curious green idol, an exceedingly ancient idol, chiseled in the likeness of Bakrug, the great water lizard. That idol, enshrined in the high temple at Alarnek, was subsequently worshipped beneath the gibbous moon throughout the land of Manar. End of The Doom That Came to Sarnath Recording by Matt Bonhoff The Cats of Ulthar by H. P. Lovecraft. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Clark Pigeot. The Cats of Ulthar by H. P. Lovecraft. It is said that in Ulthar, which lies beyond the river sky, no man may kill a cat, and this I can verily believe as I who gaze upon him who sitteth purring before the fire, for the cat is cryptic and close to strange things which man cannot see. He is the soul of antique Egyptus and bearer of tales from forgotten cities in Meroe and Ophir. He is the kin of the jungle's lords and heir to the secrets of hoary and sinister Africa. The Sphinx is his cousin, and he speaks her language, but he is more ancient than the Sphinx, and remembers that which she hath forgotten. In Ulthar, before ever the Burgesses forbade the killings of cats, there dwelt an old cotter and his wife who delighted to trap and slay the cats of their neighbors. Why they did this I know not, save that many hate the voice of the cat in the night, and take it ill that cats should run stealthily about yards and gardens at twilight. But whatever the reason, this old man and woman took pleasure in trapping and slaying every cat which came near their hovel. And from some of the sounds heard after dark, Many villagers fancied that the manner of slaying was exceedingly peculiar. But the villagers did not discuss such things with the old man and his wife because of the habitual expression on the withered faces of the two, and because their cottage was so small and so darkly hidden under spreading oaks at the back of a neglected yard. In truth, much as the owners of the cats hated these odd folks, they feared them more, and instead of berating them as brutal assassins, merely took care that no cherished pet or mouser should stray towards the remote hovel under the dark trees. When, through some unavoidable oversight, a cat was missed, and sounds heard after dark, the loser would lament impotently, or console himself by thanking fate that it was not one of his children who had thus vanished. For the people of Ulthar were simple, and knew not whence it is all cats first came. One day, a caravan of strange wanderers from the south entered the narrow, cobbled streets of Ulthar. Dark wanderers they were, 
and unlike the other roving folk who passed through the village twice every year. In the marketplace they sold fortunes for silver and bought gay beads from the merchants. What was the land of these wanderers none could tell, but it was seen that they were given to strange prayers, and that they had painted on the sides of their wagons strange figures with humanoid bodies and the heads of cats, hawks, rams, and lions. And the leader of the caravan wore a headdress with two horns and a curious disc betwixt the horns. There was, in this singular caravan, a little boy, with no father or mother, but only a tiny black kitten to cherish. The plague had not been kind to him, yet had left him this small furry thing to mitigate his sorrows. And when one is very young, one can find great relief in the lively antics of a black kitten. So the boy, whom the dark people called Menes, smiled more often than he wept, as he sat playing with his graceful kitten on the steps of an oddly painted wagon. On the third morning of the wanderer's stay in Althar, Menes could not find his kitten, and as he sobbed aloud in the marketplace, certain villagers told him of the old man and his wife, and of sounds heard in the night, and when he heard these things his sobbing gave place to meditation, and finally to prayer. He stretched out his arms towards the sun and prayed in a tongue no villager could understand, though indeed the villagers did not try very hard to understand, since their attention was mostly taken up by the sky and the odd shapes the clouds were assuming. It was very peculiar, but as the little boy uttered his petition, there seemed to form overhead the shadowy, nebulous figures of exotic things, of hybrid creatures crowned with horn-flanked discs, natures full of such illusions to impress the imaginative. That night, the wanderers left Ulthar and were never seen again, and the households were troubled when they noticed that in all the village there was not a cat to be found. From each hearth the familiar cat had vanished, Cats large and small, black, gray, striped, yellow, and white. Old Cranon, the burgomaster, swore that the dark folk had taken the cats away in revenge for the killing of Mene's kitten, and cursed the caravan and the little boy. But Nith, the lean notary, declared that the old cotter and his wife were more likely persons to suspect, for their hatred of cats was notorious and increasingly bold. Still, no one durst complain to the sinister couple, even when little Attil, the innkeeper's son, vowed that he had at twilight seen all the cats of Ulthar in that accursed yard, under the trees, pacing very slowly and solemnly in a circle around the cottage, to abreast, as if in performance of some unheard-of rite of beasts. The villagers did not know how much to believe from so small a boy, and though they feared that the evil pair had charmed the cats to their death, they preferred not to chide the old cotter till they met him outside his dark and repellent yard. So Ulthar went to sleep in vain anger, and when the people awakened at dawn, behold, every cat was back at his accustomed hearth, 
large and small, black and gray, striped yellow and white. None was missing. Very sleek and fat did the cats appear, and sonorous with purring content. The citizens talked with one another of the affair, and marveled not a little. Old Cranon again insisted that it was the dark folk who had taken them, since cats did not return alive from the cottage of the ancient man and his wife. But all agreed on one thing, that the refusal of all the cats to eat their portions of meat or drink their saucers of milk was exceedingly curious. And for two whole days the sleek, lazy cats of Ulthar would touch no food, but only doze by the fire or in the sun. It was fully a week before the villagers noticed that no lights were appearing at dusk in the windows of the cottage under the trees. Then the lean Nith remarked that no one had seen the old man or his wife since the night the cats were away. In another week the burgomaster decided to overcome his fears and call at the strangely silent dwelling as a matter of duty, though in doing so he was careful to take with him Shang the blacksmith and Thul the cutter of stone as witnesses. And when they had broken down the frail door they found only this, two cleanly picked human skeletons on the earthen floor and a number of singular beetles crawling in the shadowy corners. There was, subsequently, much talk among the burgesses of Ulthar. Zath, the coroner, disputed at length with Nith, the lead notary, and Cranon and Shang and Thal were overwhelmed with the questions. Even little Attle, the innkeeper's son, was closely questioned and given a sweetmeat as reward. They talked of the old cotter and his wife, of the caravan of dark wanderers, of small Menes and his black kitten, of the prayer of Menes and of the sky during that prayer, of the doings of the cats on the night the caravan left, and of what was later found in the cottage under the dark trees in the repellent yard. And in the end the Burgesses passed that remarkable law which is told by traders in Hatheg and discussed by travellers in Nier, namely, that in Ulthar no man may kill a cat. End of Cats of Ulthar by H.P. Lovecraft Recording by Clark Pigeot Truth is stranger than fiction, and this is the truth. This is Ripley's Believe It or Not. There was a shoe worn by the ancient Egyptians with the outline of an enemy on its sole so that the wearer could stamp on his enemy with each step he took. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you the story of a very remarkable man. Billy Marshall, a tinker of Kirkwood Bright, Scotland, was truly a most remarkable man. In his earlier years, he enlisted in the Army and the Navy ten times. Each time he enlisted, he deserted without ever being caught. He outlived 17 wives, and he became the father of four children after he was 100 years of age. He finally died in the year 1792 at the age of 120 years. Believe it or not.
And we're back. That was The Doom That Came to Sarnath and The Cats of Ulthar by Howard Philip Lovecraft. Up next, we have the first episode of the Magnus Archives, a podcast series where an archivist recounts horrific tales of evil and the supernatural. Episode 1 is titled Anglerfish. I'll be back after to introduce the next segment and our OTR selection for the show. Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 1 Anglerfish My name is Jonathan Sims. I work for the Magnus Institute, London, an organization dedicated to academic research into the esoteric and the paranormal. The head of the Institute, Mr. Elias Bouchard, has employed me to replace the previous head archivist, one Gertrude Robinson, who has recently passed away. I've been working as a researcher at the Institute for four years now, and I'm familiar with most of our more significant contracts and projects. Most reach dead ends, predictably enough, as incidents of the supernatural, such as they are, and I always emphasize there are very few genuine cases, tend to resist easy conclusions. When an investigation has gone as far as it can, it is transferred to the archives. Now, the Institute was founded in 1818, which means that the archive contains almost 200 years of case files at this point. Combine that with the fact that most of the Institute prefers the ivory tower of pure academia to the complicated work of dealing with statements or recent experiences, and you have the recipe for an impeccably organized library and an absolute mess of an archive. This isn't necessarily a problem. Modern filing and indexing systems are a real wonder, and all it would need is a half-decent archivist to keep it in order. Gertrude Robinson was apparently not that archivist. From where I am sitting, I can see thousands of files, many spread loosely around the place, others crushed into unmarked boxes. A few have dates on them, or helpful labels such as 86-91G-H. Not only that, but most of them appear to be handwritten or produced on a typewriter, with no accompanying digital or audio versions of any sort. In fact, I believe the first computer to ever enter this room is the laptop that I brought in today. 
More importantly, it seems as though little of the actual investigations have been stored in the archives, so the only thing in most of the files are the statements themselves. It is going to take me a long, long time to organise this mess. I've managed to secure the services of two researchers to assist me. Well, technically three, but I don't count Martin as he's unlikely to contribute anything but delays. I plan to digitise the files as much as possible and record audio versions, though some will have to be on tape recorder, as my attempts to get them on my laptop have met with significant audio distortions. Alongside this, Tim, Sasha, and, yes, I suppose Martin, will be doing some supplementary investigation to see what details may be missing from what we have. I'll try to present these in as succinct a fashion as I can at the end of each statement. I can, unfortunately, promise no order in regards to date or theme of the statements that are recorded, and can only apologise to any future researcher attempting to use these files for their own investigations. That's probably enough time spent making my excuses for the state of this place, and I suppose we have to begin somewhere. Statement of Nathan Watts, regarding an encounter on Old Fish Market Close, Edinburgh. Original statement given April 22nd, 2012. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. This all happened a couple of years ago, so I apologise if some of the details are a bit off. I mean, I feel like I remember it clearly, but sometimes things are so weird that you start to doubt yourself. Still, I suppose weird is kind of what you guys do, right? So I'm studying at the University of Edinburgh, biochemistry specifically, and I was in my second year at the time this happened. I wasn't in any sort of university accommodation at this point, and was renting a student flat down in Southside with a few other second years. To be honest, I didn't hang out with them much. I took a gap year before matriculating, and my birthday's in the wrong part of September, so I was nearly two years older than most of my peers when I started my course. I got on with them fine, you understand, but I tended to end up hanging out with some of the older students. That's why I was at the party in the first place. Michael McCauley, a good friend of mine, had just been accepted to do a master's degree in earth sciences, so we decided a celebration was in order. Well, maybe party isn't quite the right word, we just kind of invaded the Albanac down on the Royal Mile and drank long enough and loud enough that eventually we had the back area to ourselves. Now, I don't know how well you know the drinking holes of Edinburgh, but the Albanac has a wide selection of some excellent single malts, and I may have slightly overindulged. I have... Vague memories of Mike suggesting I slow down, to which I responded by roundly swearing at him for failing to properly celebrate his own good news, or words to that effect. Long story short, I was violently ill around midnight and made the decision to walk the route home. It wasn't far to my flat, maybe half an hour if I'd been sober, and the night was cool enough that I remember having a hope that the chill would perk me up some. I headed for the Cowgate, and the quickest way to get there from the Royal Mile is down Old Fish Market Close. Now, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that there are some steep hills in Edinburgh, but Old Fish Market Close is exceptional, even by those standards. At times it must reach a 30 or 40 degree angle, which is hard enough to navigate when you don't have that much scotch inside you. As I have mentioned, I had 
quite a lot, so it probably wasn't that surprising when I took a rather nasty tumble about halfway down the street. In retrospect, the fall wasn't that bad compared to what it could have been, but at the time it really shook me up and left me with some nasty bruises. I picked myself up as best I could, checked I hadn't seriously injured myself, no broken bones or anything, and decided to roll a cigarette to calm myself. That was when I heard it. Can I have a cigarette? I was startled out of my thoughts by the words, as I thought I had been alone. Quickly trying to compose myself and looking around, I noticed a small alleyway on the opposite side of the street. It was very narrow and completely unlit, with a short staircase leading up. I could see a light fixture a little way up the wall at its entrance, but it either wasn't working or wasn't turned on, meaning that beyond a few steps the alley was shrouded in total darkness. Stood there, a couple of stairs from the street, was a figure. It was hard to tell much about them as they were mostly in the shadows, though if I'd had to guess I would have said the voice sounded male. They seemed to sway ever so slightly as I watched, and I assumed that they, like me, were probably a little bit drunk. I lit my own cigarette and held out my tobacco towards them, though I didn't approach, and asked if they were okay with a roll-up. The figure didn't move, except to continue that gentle swaying. Writing it down now, it seems so obvious that something was wrong. If I hadn't been so drunk, maybe I'd have noticed quicker, but even when the stranger asked the question again, can I have a cigarette? Utterly without intonation, still I didn't understand why I was so uneasy. I stared at the stranger, and as my eyes began to adjust, I could make out more details. I could see that their face appeared blank, expressionless, and their skin seemed damp and slightly sunken, like they had a bad fever. The swaying was more pronounced now, seeming to move from the waist, side to side, back and forth. By this point I had finished rolling a second cigarette and gingerly held it out towards them, but I didn't get any closer. I decided that if this weirdo wanted a cigarette, they were going to need to come out of the creepy alleyway. They didn't come closer, didn't make any movement at all except for that damn swaying. For some reason the thought of an anglerfish popped into my head. The single point of light dangled into the darkness, hiding the thing that lures you in. Can I have a cigarette? It spoke again in the same flat voice, and I realized exactly what was wrong. Its mouth was closed, had been the whole time. Whatever was repeating that question, it wasn't the figure in the alleyway. I looked at their feet, and saw that they weren't quite touching the ground. The stranger's form was being lifted, ever so slightly, and moved gently from side to side. I dropped the cigarette and grabbed for my phone, trying to turn on the torch. I don't know why I didn't run, or what I hoped to see in that alley, but I wanted to get a better look. As soon as I took out my phone, the figure disappeared. It sort of folded at the waist and vanished back into the darkness, as if a string had gone taut and pulled it back. I turned on the torch and stared into the alley, but I saw nothing. Just silence and darkness. I staggered back up to the Royal Mile, which still had lights and people, and found a taxi to take me home. I slept late the next day.
I'd made sure I didn't have any lectures or classes as I had intended to be sleeping off a heavy night of drinking, which I guess I was, although it was that bizarre encounter that kept playing in my mind. And so, after making my way through two litres of water, some painkillers and a very greasy breakfast, I felt human enough to leave my flat and go to investigate the place in daylight. The result was unenlightening. There were no marks, no blood stains, nothing to indicate that the swaying figure had ever been there at all. The only thing I did find was an unsmoked Marlboro red cigarette lying just below the burned-out light fixture. Beyond that, I didn't really know what to do. I did as much research as I could on the place, but couldn't find anyone who'd had any experience similar to mine, and there didn't seem to be any folklore or urban legends I could find out about Old Fish Market Close. The few friends I'd told about what happened just assumed I'd been accosted by some stranger, and the alcohol had made it seem much weirder than it was. I tried to explain that I'd never had hallucinations while drunk, and that there was no way this guy had just been a normal person. But they always gave me one of those looks, halfway between pity and concern, and I'd shut up. I never did find out anything else about it. But a few days later I saw some missing person appeals go up around campus. Another student had disappeared. John Fellows his name was, though I didn't really know the guy and couldn't tell you much about him, except for two things that struck me as very important. He had been at that same party, and, as far as I remembered, had still been there when I left. The other was just that, well, on the photo they'd used for his missing persons appeal, I couldn't help but notice that there was a pack of Marlboro Red cigarettes poking out of his pocket. I haven't quit smoking, but I do find that I take a lot more taxis now if I find myself out too late. Statement ends. The investigation at the time and the follow-up we've done over the last couple of days have found no evidence to corroborate Mr. Watt's account of his experience. I was initially inclined to refile this statement in the discredited section of the archive, a new category I've created that will, I suspect, be housing the majority of these files. However, Sasha did some digging into the police reports of the time, and it turns out that between 2005 and 2010, when Mr. Watts' encounter supposedly took place, there were six disappearances in and around the old fish market close. Jessica McEwen in November 2005, Sarah Baldwin in August 2006, Daniel Rawlings in December of the same year, then Ashley Dobson and Megan Shaw in May and June of 2008. Then finally, as Mr. Watts mentioned, John Fellows in March 2010. All six disappearances remain unsolved. Baldwin and Shaw were definitely smokers, but there's no evidence either way about the others, if they're even connected. Sasha did find one other thing, specifically in the case of Ashley Dobson. It was a copy of the last photograph taken by her phone and sent to her sister Siobhan. The caption was, Check out this drunk creeper, LOL. But the picture is of a darkened, apparently empty alleyway, with stairs leading up into it. It appears to be the same alleyway which Mr. Watts described in his statement, the one that, according to maps of the area, leads to Tron Square. 
but there doesn't seem to be anyone in the photograph at all. Sasha took the liberty of running it through some editing programs, though, and increasing the contrast appears to reveal the outline of a long, thin hand, roughly at what would be waist level on a male of average height. I find it oddly hard to shake off the impression that it's beckoning. End recording. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos, and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at the Rusty Quill, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening. Abraham Fuller of Newton, Massachusetts, was so fanatically opposed to debts that when a physician was called to write out his death certificate, the doctor found his fee in the dead man's clenched fist. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about an unusual railway. Cable cars in San Francisco have added charm and transportation for many years. Equally unusual is the Cliff Railway near Lynmouth, England. It has 900 feet of rails bolted to the solid rock of a cliff, and its two cars are operated with water. Water flows into the tank of the car at the top, and as it starts down, it pulls up the other car, which has been lightened by draining its water tank. Believe it or not. Once again, we're back. That was episode one of the Magnus Archives, Anglerfish. Next, we have our all-time radio selection for the show. This week's was carefully chosen because it has an air of eldritch horror about it. Dread Time Stories and yours cruelly is happy to present Quiet Please with Nothing Behind the Door. 
I'll be back after to close out the show. Mutual Broadcasting System presents the first of a series of new and unusual dramatic programs written and directed by Willis Cooper and featuring Ernest Chappell. Quiet, please. Quiet, please. Maybe 20 feet long, 15 feet wide. It's made of corrugated iron sheets with a high peaked roof. It sort of hangs over the edge of the mountaintop, with nothing but the spikes of pine trees stretching all the way down to Pasadena, better than a mile below you. Did you ever get out to California? Well, if you do, go up there sometime and take a look at that little house. But look at it through the fence that surrounds it. That's far enough. Through the fence. You go out Foothill Boulevard toward Pasadena, but you turn off on Angeles Crest Highway at La Canada. Just keep on driving up here. When you get there, just keep right on going. The top of Mount Wilson is the end of the highway. You ever look through a big telescope? At the sky at night? At the things up there? Things so far away, you sprain your brain just trying to imagine how far away they are. With nothing between you and them. Billions and billions of miles of nothing. I don't know what it does to you, but brother, I freeze. Listen, do you know there are holes in the sky? No, I mean it. I've seen them. There's a thing in the constellation Andromeda. No, no, wait a minute. I'm not going to get technical with you. Just listen. There's this thing astronomers call it the Horsehead Nebula. You know what it is? It's a hole. It's a great big patch of nothing. Just nothing. There aren't any stars there. It's just a hole. No, nobody knows anything about it. Astronomers look at it. They take pictures of it. Then there it stays. There it is now and tomorrow and the next day. And a million years from now, and it's been there always. Yes, it has. It's so far away that what you see now is the way it looked a billion years ago. Before there was anybody to see it, friend. And there's lots more of those places. So what's all this got to do with a little house up on top of Mount Wilson? I'll tell This was quite some time ago. I'd been living in California State for several years. I had a couple of bucks. Had a nice little place near Venice. That was before the valley got to be so popular with movie people, radio comics, people like that. And it wasn't bad living alone, waking up in the middle of the night hearing the Southern Pacific lock whistle for the crossing out around Chatsworth, listening to a dog howling way out across the valley, going back to sleep. 
I don't get back to sleep so easy these days. Well, these people from Cleveland were out there. Aldo Minucci and Hugh Grant. We used to be great friends, Aldo and Hugh and I. So nothing would do but they'd come to stay with me. Well, it was all right. I had a Dodge convertible. The boys got quite a kick out of California. That's how we came to go up to Mount Wilson that day. Aldo and Hugh had been, uh, you know, uh, looking around for odd places. They had some ideas. So one day we were having breakfast, and they were looking at an automobile club bulletin. Aldo said, let's go to Mount Wilson. So we did. So we did. I've been up there once before. You know how it is in California. I knew everything. I thought I knew everything. I found out different. We were inside the big dome where the 100-inch telescope is. It's like being inside a giant's watch. The telescope is in the middle, a big spidery framework with ladders climbing all over it up under this dome. The tourists stand on the kind of a catwalk around the edge while the astronomer explains as much as he thinks the Apollonacos will understand. There was just a few of us that day standing close to a little kind of pulpit listening with our mouths open. Yeah, it is like a pulpit. I got to thinking that day how the astronomer looked like a priest up there. Nice old white-haired fellow like a priest. And I was thinking he was talking about the heavens too. I'd seen it all before, but my mouth was as wide open as Hughes and Aldo's. Too. It moves around the sun at the rate of about 18 and a half miles per second. So therefore, you see, we must, in order to keep this telescope focused accurately on the celestial objects we are observing, neutralize those motions mechanically. The telescope itself, as you will observe, is controllable in any direction by this motor. Notice the motion of the telescope. And the final movement, the rotation of the entire dome, exactly synchronized with the speed of the Earth through space. Watch through the shutters above the space. Outside. We we ain't moving. The sky's gone by. Look at you. I see it. It's an optical illusion, Aldo. No, it's not an optical illusion. In relation to space, this spot we are on is standing still. Through these motions here in the dome, the mirror of the telescope is kept aimed exactly at one spot far out in space. What's space, mister? It's nothing. About the air. Sure, a few miles of air, my friend, and then. Nothing. Huh. Oh, stars. Yes, stars. Yes. And the places where there are no stars. My skin twitched a little when he said that. The places where there are no stars. Did yours? Well, the show was over. We went outside into the sunlight. We walked across the long wooden bridge. There's a deep gully in front of the dome. And down a little path past the thing they call a coelostat. 
was small, though, among legs about a hundred feet high. Then they studied the sun and sunspots and things like that with. And it was quiet up there, along toward the middle of the afternoon. There was a chill in the air. We were just talking. It's an odd place, and you get kind of impressed. The people impress you. The astronomers. They live up there, all by themselves. They look at the sky. They see things. You always get the feeling they know a lot more than they're telling. Like the doctors. Like priests, I guess. Oh, I said that, didn't I? Well, that's what they like. The path leads through the woods. Biggest live oaks you ever saw leads through the woods over to the old hotel. So I said, hey, how about a beer before we start down, huh? A beer? That's for me. Can you get hard liquor up here, Ross? No, I don't think so. Anyway, I wouldn't want to drink, not with all that mountain road ahead of me. No, sir. Don't take no drink, Ross. I don't want to ride that road that nobody's had a drink of liquor. Maybe you shouldn't have a beer, even. Well, wait a minute. Beer won't hurt me. Hey, what's this fence for? Huh? Well, I never noticed that before. That's quite a fence. I have a hard time getting over that. What would you want to get over it for? I don't know. What do you suppose is on the other side where they got this heavy fence? I don't see anything. Except that little house out there on stilts. Yeah, funny looking place. Fence goes right around it. Ain't there a gate? Oh, come on. Let's get a beer. No, I want to look at this, Ross. Probably they got something valuable in there. Sure, a scientific instrument or something. This place is all full of that stuff. Hey, look. Sign. Huh? Where? Here. Oh, come on. Oh, wait. What's it say? The public is forbidden to pass beyond this fence under severe penalty. Hello? Yeah. What do you suppose they got in that place? I don't know. I don't care. Hey, there's a door up at the end of that trestle. Maybe we could get back and get in through that other shed where the trestle stopped, huh? What do you want to go in there for? Oh, come on, we got to get going. No, I'm just curious. You know what I mean. Place might come in handy. Oh, yeah. See? Especially if they keep everybody out like this. Well, the thing must be full of stuff, you like Ross said, scientific stuff. Yeah, it might be. Might not be. Hey, here comes that fellow that made the spiel up there. Well, ask him. He'd know. Yeah, he won't tell you. Well, we'll find out. Hey, fella. How are you? Hey. Were you talking to me? Yeah. What's in that funny-looking building? Over there? Nothing. Yeah? What's the idea of the fence, then? We don't want people to go in. I'd sure like to see what's in it. I said there's nothing in there. You sure, mister? Yes, I'm absolutely Uh, could we get a pass to go in there, maybe? No. You saw the sign, didn't you? Yeah, it said something about the penalty of the law. You didn't read it very carefully. He didn't read it. I did. Read it again. Wait. The public forbidden to pass beyond this fence under severe penalty. See? I see what he means. He didn't say anything about the law. Ah, that's right. Well, then, there are other penalties. Ah, Right, huh? yeah. Not at all. Well, what does it mean, then? I'll give you a little friendly advice. I wouldn't try to find out if I were you. Oh, is that so? Yes. Do you really know what's in there, mister? Yes. What? Nothing. Okay, lads. Let's go get that beer. <laughs> Well, of 
you know it was up your way ahead of me. My Cleveland pals weren't in California just for a vacation. There was a bank I'd had my eye on for a while out in Pacific Palisade. It wasn't the first bank that Manucci and Hugh Grant and I had worked a deal on. I didn't go much for this place up on Mount Wilson with nothing in it and a fence around it. Aldo and Hugh, well, after all, could you find a better place to stash away some dough? Nobody could get in, they said. And if we could... Well, so I bought the idea finally. And to make a long story short, we took, I think it was $53,000 out of the bank. Fifty-three, fifty-four. Now, what's the difference? All gone now. It's a long drive from Pacific Palisades over Sunset Boulevard, then up Beverly Glen to the valley, through the Nice to Sunland, down past the sanitarium on Foothill Boulevard to where you turn off on the Angeles Crest Highway. A long drive, especially at one o'clock in the morning. That was when we pulled out of Pacific Palisades. It was summer. Just uh, after you turn on the mountain road, you're not allowed to smoke. You see, a fire warden might come along, and those guys can tell somebody's smoking in the car a half mile off. They throw you in a can for it, forest fires. Well, we didn't want anybody stopping us. It was risky enough anyway, because practically nobody ever drives up there late at night. Well, early in the morning, I mean. Well, we didn't meet anybody. All three of us were jittery with no cigarettes. That road. Stuffing up in daylight. Why, in the dark. It was half past four when we got to the top. The hotel was dark. Cabins were dark. Just like southward stars. Why ain't you put in a reach up and touch it? I remember the old guy in the hundred-inch dome. Nothing between us and the stars. And down below, and if you've ever been up there at night, you know what I mean. Just like looking down at stars. The lights are 17, 18, 19 pounds. Pasadena, Los Angeles, Hollywood, Benai. San Fernando, Culver City, Santa Monica. Makes my hair stand on end like that. And I haven't seen it for never mind how many years. Well, we stumbled through the pitch dark. We got off the path three times, nearly fell down here. And brother, that would be a fault. You still couldn't risk a cigarette. It was dark. Hugh Grant was in front, then me, then Aldo. We each had briefcases. Hugh had a pair of those big string wire cutters that were through a steel cable. All of a sudden, he bumped into the fence. Ouch! What's the matter? The fence. Hey, where are you? Stand still, will you? Dark. Shut up. Listen for a minute. Hear anything? No. No. See anything? No? Look. What? The dome over there. You see somebody? No. <laughs> Them two big windows up there. With that big round dome looks like somebody watching us. <laughs> sure does. Oh, cut it out. I'm going to try the fence with the cutters. Want the flashlight? No. I wish we would. Yeah, forget it. I just don't like that place. Now get out of the way. Want some help you? Just keep out of the way. Wait. 
wire made enough noise to... All right, all right. I'll try another strand. See if you can slide under there, one of you. Me. Okay. No, can't make it yet. I'll try another. I'll look out for your arm there. Now try. Uh, wait till I take off my coat. All right, now, let's see. Well, how about it? He's through. All right, go ahead. Me? You. All right. Cut another strand here. Now make it now. set as I ever will be, I figure. I don't like any part of this place. I don't like the dark. I don't like the stars up above us. I don't like the lights down below. I don't like the silence. I don't like climbing around the top of a mountain with nothing under me but thin air for a mile or more. All I can hear is Hugh and Aldo in front of me, cracking through the weeds, cursing when one of them whacks a shin against a sharp rock. All I can see is two black shapes in front of me. Blacker shape, that's the building, a little house with nothing in it. Aldo and Hugh are panting. Come on, Aldo. 6,800 feet, you know. Your breath is pretty short. It's tough going, especially when you're dragging a briefcase full of money, too. You're scared and sweating and tired. And then all of a sudden, we're under the building. Alongside one of the struts that hold up the little trestle. Loose me up, Aldo. Aldo boosts him up. Hugh's a little guy, he's spry. That's sprugger than I am up there a mile in the air, and I guess he's not as scared as I am. So I look up, and he's sprawling on the trestle with nine million stars behind him, reaching down to me. Grab my hand, Russ. I scrambled up. I'll never know how I made it either. Here we are in a second. The fellow's up there with us. Now, keep quiet a minute and rest. I'm knocked out. Yeah. You hear anything, Joe? Just the wind. Boss, I... Uh, no, I thought I heard something. Guess it's just the wind. Listen. It's the wind. Well? So we stood up. So Hugh walked the rest of the way down the little trestle. We followed them, stumbling over the planks. and There was the door. Rattled the bar on it. It was padlocked. So you took the big cutters and you wrenched away at the bar. We shivered there in the cold, waiting to see if anybody heard us. There wasn't a sound. So you tried again. And the bar fell off. It kept still for another minute. And then open the door. Hey, where's the flashlight? Wait. Ah, nobody can see us. Put your fingers over it and turn it in. Turn it in there. Okay. I don't see anything. Well, the guy said there was nothing in there. I can't see a thing. Open up the light a little more. I got it open. It's all black in there. There's something the matter with the light. Oh, there ain't. Look. Turn that light off me. Well, look now when I shine it inside. 
Nothing. Well, there's got to be something in there. Nothing, the man said. Can't even see the floor. Well, I'll find out if there's anything in there. No, don't go in. Can't tell what's liable to be. Well, look out. I'll toss a briefcase in. No, no. Throw the wire cutters in. Well, where are they? Here. Oh, mate, look out, will you? Keep still. You'll wake up the dead. Well, nobody heard us, I guess. A shot with luck tonight, no kidding. I'll give me them cutters. Uh, here. Shine the light in there. Sure can't see anything, can you? Throw them in. Get out of the doorway. Keep the light in there. Go ahead. Throw them against the far wall. All right. Look out. Where'd they go? Tossed them hard enough to bounce. Move the light around. I can't see a thing. I can't either. There ought to be. The light just kind of seems to... Oh, cut it out. There's probably some kind of stuff on the floor. Powdered. Maybe they fell into it. Here, stand to one side, Ross. What are you going to do? I'm going in to look around. You got a gun, Aldo? Just this little thirty-two. All right, come on. Russ, you stay here and watch and listen. I wouldn't go in there, Hugh. Nobody asked you to. I'm going. Come on, Aldo. Listen, you. You've got the screaming memes, too. Come on with that gun. There's nothing in there. Look, you. Come on, let's get out of here. Oh, shut up. Yeah. Might as well take the dough, too. We can stick it in there. Go ahead, Aldo, with the light. You go first. All right. Now stand there and keep your ears. Hey, Hugh. Where are you? can't see him. Listen, Aldo, don't go in there. I got to. Hey, Hugh! Hugh! Where are you? Listen, Aldo. Keep your eyes and ears open now. We'll be right back. Hey, Hugh! You all right? You coming in, Hugh? Hugh! Aldo! What's in there? Hey, Hugh! Okay, Ross. Something's the matter with him. Here I come! Hugh! I'm gonna... Hugh. Hey, Hugh. Aldo. Hey, what's in there, you two? Hugh. I can see you. You can stand up now. They won't come out, I assure you. Come on, son, stand up. I've got a gun. No, you haven't. Stand up. When my friends come out... They're not coming out, my friend. Stand up. You wouldn't believe me what I told What's in there? What's in there, I said? I told you there's nothing behind that door. My friends went in there. They're not there now. There's nothing in there. You understand me? There's nothing in there. Listen. No, you listen. I... No, I suppose you do no good to tell you. Tell me what? I've got to show you. Show me what? Come with me. No. Come with me. I won't. You've got it. Wait. for me.
closed down my friends. Through another door. Into a long shed in the dark. And I was glad I couldn't see the stars. Out another door at the end of the shed. Down the path past the seal staff, reaching up into the sky, shining in the starlight. Looking like one of those visitors from Mars you heard about on the radio. Across the little wooden bridge with the two eyes of the hundred-inch dome staring down at me in a cold wind coming up the other side of the mountain. And up the ramp. Into the dome itself. And up the iron stairs. Me. A little yellow light at the head of the stairs, and then out on the catwalk in the dark with the floor 40 feet below us. Up another ladder. My legs are getting tired. Up. Follow me. Up another dizzy ladder. And another. And across another spidery walk. Here. Sit in this seat. I can't speak. My throat is dry. My legs are trembling. I'm icy cold in that great dome how far above the floor. I can't tell you. Sit still. You won't fall. What did... What Sit is... still, I said. You'll have to be sure. Wait. Magnetic destination. You can look now. Look. At what? Look through the telescope. No. Look, son. What do you see? Stars. Millions of stars. Wait. Look again. What do you see? Nothing. Nothing. What? Now? Stars again. Millions. No, a black cloud. Now? Nothing. That nothing you see is a million light years away. What is it? There's nothing there to see. My friend, there are scores of places in this universe where there's nothing. Far places, near places. You understand what I mean? Is that what you meant when you said... When I said there's nothing behind that door? Yes. Well, where... Where... Your friends? Your misguided friends? I don't know. Perhaps... Take your eye from the telescope. Wait. Look now, if you dare. Well, what? Look. Yes. You guess what I saw. You guess what I saw clawing through black clouds of nothing. You guess what eyes I saw. I saw nothing. The little house is still there on Mount Wilson. You can go look at it if you want to. But don't go too close. Maybe somebody will tell you it's just a place where they store equipment. Maybe. 
Why do they keep the door locked then? Well, just one other thing. Don't you go around opening doors you don't know anything about. There might be nothing behind one of them. just heard Quiet, Please, which is written and directed by Willis Cooper. The man who talked to you is Ernest Chappell. And the man who played Aldo Minucci is Martin Lawrence. Pat O'Malley was Hugh Grant and James Van Dyke, the astronomer. The music was composed and played by Gene Parazzo. And now for a word about Quiet, Please for next week, here is our writer-producer, Willis Cooper. Phil? I've written what I think is an exciting and unusual love story for next week, Chappie. We'll welcome as our guest the charming star of stage and radio, Claudia Morgan. Quiet, please, for next week is entitled, I've Been Looking for You. Until next week, then, quietly yours, Ernest Chappell. Mutual Broadcasting System. Jefferson, who was the father of President Thomas Jefferson, could simultaneously upend two hogsheads of tobacco, each weighing 1,000 pounds. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about one of the strangest robberies in all history. In Lucerne, Switzerland, a grave robber in the mausoleum of General Ludwig Pfeiffer's wife got the scare of his lifetime. The general's wife, who had been interred in the mausoleum the night before, suddenly sat up in her coffin and screamed at him. The lady was still very much alive. Madame Pfeiffer, clad only in a shroud, walked all the way home and lived another 20 years. But she never smiled again. Believe it or not.
And now, dear listeners, we've reached the conclusion of our program. That was Quiet Please with Nothing Behind the Door. Since we're at the end of our program, that means it's time to do some housekeeping. First, I would like to point out that we now have a form for our dear listeners to submit suggestions for stories to use on this program. All the details are on it, and the link will be in the show notes. However, we would like to remind our listeners that this program currently only will air stories that are confirmed to be in the public domain. Second, since several of our shows are currently on hiatus, I will not be running down our schedule for the time being. You can find that on our website at radioforhumans.com. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email yours cruelly at timefordread at gmail.com. All incidental music heard in this program is courtesy of tabletopaudio.com. Tabletop Audio, music forever your work, podcast, or play. Dungeons and Dragons. Finally, if you've enjoyed this program or any of our other fine shows here on Radio for Humans, please consider signing up for our Patreon when it launches. There will be an announcement when that happens. All of your support will go towards keeping commercial-free radio programs as well as licensed music on the air all day every day for your listening pleasure. Until next time, dear listeners, I wish you well. Take care and unpleasant dreams. Time Stories Back from the Grave is a production of Adam Hebert for Radio for Humans and approved podcasting platforms. Neither the producer nor Radio for Humans claim anything as their own intellectual property that they themselves have not created. <laughs>